You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with David Livingstone Smith. David is a professor of philosophy at the University of New England, where he teaches courses on philosophy of psychology, philosophy of mind, philosophy of race, and other topics. He is the author of seven books, including Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others, and he is working on a new book entitled Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. In this episode, we talk about dehumanization, creepiness, race, monsters, how to combat dehumanization, and so much more. So David, welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. And I have to say it's a real great honor to to be on the Unmute Podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited about this episode. So tell me first, David, how did you get interested in philosophy? Oh, well, that's a peculiar story. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't my first field. I was a psychotherapist and a psychotherapy educator. I directed a master's program in London, England, psychotherapy and counseling. And But I didn't have a PhD. So I thought, I kind of like this academic stuff. I, I should go get a PhD. And well, the obvious move was to go to University College London, where they had a psychoanalysis unit. And uh, I consulted with the guy who directed a very nice, very distinguished psychoanalyst who said, look, you know, you're going to have to take these courses on research methodology and the kind of research that would be acceptable here. You're just going to find boring. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go down the road to King's College? There's a philosopher there who's interested in Freud. Okay. Now, I happen to know this guy from when I did my MA. He evaluated some of my work. He's a philosopher named Jim Hopkins. And he was, I think, so delighted that to find a grad student who was interested in Freud that he made the case for University of London to take me on uh, as a grad student in philosophy, despite my having absolutely zero background in philosophy. Okay. Now, completely zero. So I kind of fell into philosophy. It, it was it was entirely accidental. So here's the thing. So. So you fell in, but what, what kept you in? Because you can be in something and still not be interested, right? So, yeah. so, so you're taking classes now, part of this PhD program. So you fell no, into no, philosophy. No, no hold, hold on, hold on. No classes. Oh. This, is, this is in Great Britain. Yes, I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. Yes. <laughs> Very so different he, from the American system. So he's, he's telling me, he's giving me things to read, and I'd go off and write essays and come back to him. And that was the way it unfolded over eight years, actually. I had a full-time job and a young family at the time. So what kept me in? Well, after I got the PhD, I really didn't identify with being a philosopher at all. I just thought, well, that just gives me a PhD. And then through a very strange combination of events, I ended up coming to the United States and basically starting over. And I kind of retooled and became a philosopher. Now, what really, really helped was my spouse was doing her PhD in philosophy at Cornell University. And I kind of read along with her because my education was really, really, really narrow, really focused on a very particular set of issues. 
So that broadened me out. But I still didn't really feel at home in the discipline. And it's, it's only fairly recently that I feel a little bit more comfortable in it. F- philosophy, a lot of it is way too abstract for my taste. <laughs> way, way too detached from things that I consider matter. But that's changing now. And this podcast is part of the evidence that it's changing. So I, I feel a little bit more at home <laughs> in discipline. Well, thank you so much for that. You have been doing some very interesting work on on dehumanization. And so I got to ask, because you have a a book where you talk about dehumanization, you have another book coming very Mm -hmm. soon, right? Also talking about dehumanization. So tell me, what is dehumanization? Okay, so that's a really good question to start with, because this is a word that's used in all kinds of different ways. So some people think of dehumanization as the use of animalistic slurs. They see it as sort of a linguistic phenomenon. Some people see it as disrespectful or degrading treatment of others. There are about 10 different logically independent notions of what dehumanization is in the scholarly literature alone. Then when you go to vernacular uses, it's even more all over the map. So dehumanization can mean a lot of different things. I'll tell you what I mean by dehumanization, which is just really fine-grained. What I mean is that we dehumanize others when we think of those others as subhuman creatures. So dehumanization is something that happens in your head. So you might think of me as appearing to be human, but not really being human on the inside where it matters. If you were to engage in that kind of thought process, you would be dehumanizing me. So, so give, me some, give me some more examples of dehumanization. Okay, so in the book I'm writing now and in the talks I give now, I use as sort of exhibit A the examples of spectacle lynchings in the United States. So, I mean, a lot of people don't know what spectacle lynchings were, so maybe I should explain that a little bit. The stereotypical view of what happened during lynchings in the United States was five or six guys would ride up with their Halloween costumes on, their hoods and shit like that, and They'd grab some African-American person and string them up to a tree. And that was the lynching. Even, I mean, things like that did happen and did happen frequently, although that's a very cleaned up version of what happened. Because, of course, what generally happened, even in these small scale lynchings, were torture and bodily mutilation of the most gruesome sort. Spectacle lynchings were these lynchings that were widely advertised, were attended by thousands of people. There were professional photographers taking pictures, and there were cases where even the screams of the victim were recorded on primitive gramophone rolls. And what's regarded as the first one of these attracted a crowd of between 10 and 20,000 people to observe a horrible, horrible, just unbelievably horrible sequence of tortures before this man was burned to death. Now, what interests me about these was the way that the victims are described in mostly in the media okay. at the time. So if you look, these were these events were covered very widely. So there's lots and lots of information. So I'm thinking of this first one that I mentioned, which was the lynching of Henry Smith in 1893 in Paris, Texas. And if you look at the way he's described, he's described as a beast, an animal, a monster. Mm. 
a subhuman creature, you know, very, very consistently in the press, not only in the press, in the reminiscences of people who actually attended the lynching. Now, you might think, well, weren't these people just speaking figuratively? Mm-hmm. Was it? And my response to that is, well, some of them might have been, but very, very often the case when black people in the United States were described in those terms, particularly acutely from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, this was meant quite literally. And, and we can see this from the racist literature of the period. Uh, so dehumanization in that sense is very closely related to the commission of atrocities, atrocities which would be very, very difficult for many of us, not all of us, but many of us to commit unless we thought of the victims as less than human. So, I mean, that's a a really interesting set of examples, these spectacle lynchings, but you can go to virtually any genocide, any episode of mass atrocity, and find this way of thinking playing a role. Hmm. So it it makes me wonder, do you think that this thinking, this dehumanizing thinking, is, is it a true belief? Is it a justification for the treatment that they're engaging in? Is it both? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? If, if it, well, it, I guess it could be either, but I think it's, it's primarily a, an actual belief. Okay. And because I think it's facilitating. It's not just a post hoc thing after the fact, right? Oh, you know, it was okay to do that because he's really a monster, a, a, a bloodthirsty beast. Rather, what we see if we look at dehumanization is that we find it in the buildup to mass violent. And I don't think it's just a way of people exculpating themselves as they're getting ready to do violence. And here's why I don't think so. Actually, unless you're a very special sort of person, performing such acts is actually difficult. It's very, very difficult to look at another human being in the eye and and kill them or torture them. Mm -hmm. Now, some people... It doesn't bother. But they're deviations from the the norm. And the reason for that is something about the way human beings are. We are highly, 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 highly social animals. There's no other mammal that comes anywhere near to us in sociality. In fact, it's I think it's going to be our undoing because we care more about, you know, Hollywood gossip than we do about anthropogenic climate change, mm-hmm. right? So so our our, our interests are, are so socially skewed that we often don't pay attention to things that really, really matter. Okay, so any social mammal has to have inhibitions against violence, against violence directed against members of the kind. And this is just a truism in biology. Strangers say, and in non-human animals, these would be individuals outside the breeding group, often have terrible violence un- unleashed on them. But within the breeding group, within the community, there have to be very, very strong inhibition mm-hmm. against violence, mm-hmm. or else they couldn't exist as social animals. Now, we hypersocial animals have to have extremely powerful inhibitions against doing violence to one another. Mm-hmm. And we've got these great big brains that allows us to very easily recognize that all human beings are part of a single extended human community, as it were. Now, this creates a problem. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, not to put too fine a point on it, that it's often advantageous to kill and harm and enslave others. You know, we steal their stuff, we can, we can exploit their labor without compensation, 
We can do all sorts of awful things. So that recognition, that cognitive recognition, bumps up against the emotional inhibition. Now, over the millennia, human beings have found various ways around that. So uh, one way is religious ideologies. Another way is the use of drugs to dull one's senses so that one can kill. And that goes way, 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 way back. Certain kinds of mind-altering rituals to put us in altered states of consciousness that allow us to do these things. And dehumanization is one, one more. It's not the only one. It's one more way, I think, of disabling these inhibitions against doing harm. It's, it's kind of a solution to a problem. Hmm. So it's, it's interesting that you said that dehumanization is a way to kind of do these things that we as humans wouldn't naturally do. Yeah. And and so I, I was thinking before our conversation, I was thinking about given the history of dehumanization, I was going to just thinking about if, it, if it's human nature to dehumanize others. And it seems as if your response to that question is, no, it's not human nature to do certain acts to individuals, but through dehumanization, we're able to do those particular things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you've, you've got it right there. So we're, we're unfortunately endowed with psychological capacities that make it possible for us to dehumanize people. And that's a very important and very particular set of psychological capacities. These capacities are very easily manipulated by people who have an interest in us doing harm to others. So we're, we're suckers for a certain kind of propaganda or a certain kind of entrenched ideology, just because we tend to think in this sort of way. And what I'm talking about is what psychologists call psychological essentialism. Okay. There's a robust literature on this, which began, well, really got going in the late 1980s. And basically, this, this idea is, Human beings just have a tendency, philosophers would say, an intuition, right? I, I call intuitions just biases, right? Cognitive biases. We have this tendency, we have a, a set of biases that, that lead us to do two things. One is to divide the world up into what philosophers call natural kinds, real divisions out there in the world, like biological species, for instance. That comes very naturally and easy to us. The second bit is the really important bit. We tend to think of those natural kinds as having essences. And what I mean by that is some, there's some deep fact about them that, that all, member, all and only members of the kind share. So that way of thinking, you know, what, what, what makes something a dog? It's not its appearance. That's diagnostic. It's something somehow inside the dog, in the dog's blood, or nowadays people who know nothing about genetics say in the genes. <laughs> and that's the essence. And that essence is supposed to be causally responsible for the typical doggy features like waggy tail and four legs and stuff like that. Now, what's really interesting about that, if you think about it, is that the essence can come apart from the appearance. So you might have a dog that's born with three legs. Well, it's still a dog. Why is it a dog in ordinary folk thinking? Because it's got that inner dogginess, right? You might have also, you might have a, a dog through, because of some gen genetic peculiarity looks more like a cat, still a dog. What makes the dog something inside, quote, end of quote. Now, we tend to apply this way of thinking to other human beings as well. 
The whole idea of race, in my opinion, is rooted in this way of thinking. So, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. And I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, please do. Because I, I, I've, I've heard you say this in the, in the talk, and I want you to elaborate this, on this just a little bit. Given the history of dehumanization in the West, how does, how does, his, you know, how does this history intersect with, with racial formation processes or, or racialization practices? Very, very importantly, I think dehumanized groups are not always, but they're almost always racialized before being dehumanized. So let, let's go into what's involved in racialization. You take a bunch of people and, well, I think the precondition for racialization is conflict, right? There has to be something in it for the racializing group to subordinate the racialized group, okay. right? So what is, it to, what, is a, what is it to racialize? Well, what I think it is to racialize is to treat a population of people as belonging to a, a different and inferior human natural kind. So you and I would be classified as, as different races. Depending on the historical epic, we would be classified differently, right? Yes. So the idea of that classification is that you and I are members of different human natural kinds. Now, what does that mean? That means there's some deep difference, something in our blood, in, in folk thinking, or in our genes, in pseudoscientific thinking, that sets us very fundamentally apart from one another and determines our different appearances. But it, it's very, very important in this is that it's not the appearance isn't constitutive of being a member of a race. It's a symptom. It's diagnostic. If that weren't the case, then you couldn't have passing, right? Yeah. Right? So, okay, so that's, so let's look at the story so far. A group of people is kind of situated as a distinct and inferior human natural kind, and that justifies exploiting them in some sort of way or doing harm to them in some sort of way. So they've been made fundamentally other. Dehumanization is just taking that a step further. So when we racialize people, we don't exclude them from the category of the human. We just say, well, you know, they're kind of a inferior sort of human being. Dehumanization crosses that categorical boundary. They're not really human. They just look human. Right. Really on the inside, they are subhuman creatures. And of course, then this, this kind of frees the dehumanizing population up to to harm them in ways which would be difficult to hand out to those whom we regard as fellow human beings. Does extermination necessarily follow from dehumanization? No, I think that's relatively uncommon. We dehumanize a lot more than we exterminate, right? So if you look at one of my very, very favorite examples is the descriptions written by a man named Morgan Godwin, who was an Anglican clergyman in Virginia and Barbados in the late 17th century. And he was very, very explicit when he's writing particularly about what was going down in Barbados, that the planters regarded their, their African slaves as non-human, as subhuman creatures, and that they treated them accordingly. Mm -hmm. Now, these guys weren't interested in exterminating these people, right? right? They were interested often in working them to death, but you know, death was merely a consequence of, of working them, of exploiting them, right? So it's not just extermination. 
And in fact, there are certain very distinctive exterminationist patterns of dehumanization, such that if you notice this kind of pattern, you have reason to be justified that extermination is in the offing. Mm -hmm. But it can be any kind of brutality, atrocity handed out to others that goes with dehumanization. So, so it's one thing to conceive of someone that's not human. How then yeah. do you go about conceiving of someone as a monster? Okay, this, like, this is really important. And this is stuff that my new book is going to be about, which is going to be entitled Making Monsters. So I love I love that title, by the way. Oh, I'm glad you do. <laughs> I, I love it, too. <laughs> right. So so here's the idea. And this this all sort of came about after my 2011 book on dehumanization. Right. So, look, I'm looking at a picture of you right now and I can't help but respond to you as a human being. Right. I'm looking right on my screen at your face. And that just, you know, says human to me. Bam. And that's not something I'm in control of. Now, suppose I were like a member of one of these like Stormfront who were marching in Charlottesville not too long ago. And some of these Stormfront people would consider you as a subhuman creature. So imagine I'm one of them. So I'm looking at you. I'm looking at your face. I can't help responding to you as a human being. But I've got this kind of theoretical classification of you as a subhuman creature. Now, this has a very interesting implication, I think. And the implications of this actually go back to a literature that began in 1906 and is very well developed now, but has not been brought into relation to dehumanization theory at all. So back in, in 1906, there was a German psychiatrist who wrote a paper called On the Psychology of the Uncanny. Now, this word translated as uncanny from the German, I don't think it's the best translation of it, at least in these contexts. The word is, is unheimlich, and I prefer to translate this as creepy. Okay. It's a kind of a, it, the English uncanny can be used in a very neutral or even a laudatory way, you know. She has an uncanny ability to, to, to throw the basketball through the hoop or something like that. Uncanny in German, in most contexts, is a more negatively toned word. Mm -hmm. So what, what was interesting to Jensch is when we get creeped out by something, what's going on? And the conclusion he came to was super interesting. This is my rendition. This isn't quite what he says. This is sort of my philosophically cleaned up version. <laughs> okay. So we experience something as creepy. When we can't, our mind, we can't decide what kind of thing it is. We treat it as belonging to two different contrary natural kinds at the same time. So if we go back to Jensch's paper, he gives the example of figures in a wax museum. So there are these real realistic human figures. You go to Madame Tussauds or something, and say you see a figure of Donald Trump. God forbid, but you might have that experience, right? And it looks just like the guy. But then you look a little closer and it's not moving. It's not breathing. The eyes look kind of dead. The skin just doesn't seem like real skin. So on one hand, you're reacting to it like a human being, that sort of human recognition system is turned on. Well, on the other hand, you're thinking, no, this is just a chunk of inert matter. As long as your mind can't really 
decisively settle on one or the other and is pulled both ways at once. It elicits, he thought, this creepiness feeling, feeling of Unheimlichkeit. Now, this kind of links up with a whole other literature, and I'll skip the the whole story. I'll, I'll go right to a philosopher named Noel Carroll, who wrote a wonderful book on the philosophy of horror. And one of the things he asks in this book is, well, what's a monster? What's a monster in horror fiction? And what he suggests is a monster in horror fiction is a being with two properties. One is it's physically dangerous. It's out to get you. It's out to hurt you, right? Mm -hmm. The other property is that, well, it's what he calls cognitively dangerous. I call metaphysically dangerous. What, what do we mean by that? It crosses these boundaries. It transgresses boundaries between natural kinds. So think of a, a vampire, which is alive and dead at the same time, or a werewolf, which is a wolf and a human being at the same time. Mm -hmm. these, this is the very essence of unnaturalness, right? It doesn't fit into a natural kind. It transgresses. So monstrousness. I think what happens when we dehumanize people, come right circle back to where I started, is on one hand, we can't help responding to them as human beings. On the other hand, we classify them as subhuman. And these two things are going on at the same time. Now, what happens as a result of that is we experience them as highly disturbing and highly threatening, both physically threatening. Well, that comes first, actually. This is what motivates us to dehumanize them in the first place. We see them as bad, dangerous, nasty, but now metaphysically threatening as well. And that metaphysical threat, that crossing of boundaries kind of amps up the danger that we attribute. And this is why very often, this is a little bit of a simplification, but it's, it's good enough for now. <laughs> We see dehumanized populations as having these sort of superhuman characteristics, right? So if, if we can go back to my initial example of the dehumanization of African-Americans in the late 19th century, early 20th century, particularly Afri African-American males, by the way, by whites, they are seen as having various superhuman capacities, insensitivity to pain, prodigious sexual ap appetites, and, and so on, right? So this idea of superhumanization, what psychologists call the superhumanization bias, is a, is a function of the dehumanization process itself. It, and it's not just that case. If we look at the Nazis' characteristics of Jews, interestingly, in both cases, both cases illustrate what I described to you earlier, the racialization preceding the dehumanization. Jews were seen as having, being extremely formidable enemies of everything that was good and right and decent in the world. You know, they had superhuman intellectual powers, and it was a life and death struggle. This was a tiny percentage of the population, right? But my God, how dangerous they were seen. So that's the monster bit. When we dehumanize others, the Intention isn't to turn them into monsters. The intention is to just relegate them to a subhuman status. But because we can't shape a recognition of their humanity, we end up turning them into monsters. And then they become much, much more threatening and dangerous than we had ever imagined. Dangerous and threatening, of course, in our own imagination. So, so let's talk a little bit more, particularly because I've been thinking about this superhuman aspect and how... I believe it's a form of dehumanization. So you, you talk about the superhuman aspect as being threatening. 
right? And as you were talking, I was thinking about the police encounter, at least his report of his encounter with Mike Brown, suggesting that he became like the Incredible Hawk in some sense, right? This physical ability to not feel pain and to be strong and therefore dangerous, right? Yes, yes. And you're mentioning, you know, kind of the Jewish intellectual ability as being dangerous. But I wonder if we can flip it just a little bit, right? So you have this this notion of superhumanness as, as it refers to danger, but also wonder about superhuman abilities that are virtuous, mm. but can also be a form of dehumanization, right? So, mm-hmm. so my work is right now is focused on anger and forgiveness, particularly uh, the ways in which we ask Black victims of anti-Black racism if they forgive. And in some ways, I've been thinking about kind of having this idea of Black individuals, particularly Black women, as being super virtuous, right? Being able to forgive no matter what pain they encounter, no matter what oppression they encounter. Uh, They just love everybody and they're going to offer up forgiveness. And in some way, we celebrate that as them being, you know, being able to achieve some type of miracle of being stronger than what we are. And we celebrate that virtue in some way, right? And But in some ways, I'm beginning to look at that celebration as more of a billboard of superhumanness, which is connected to dehumanization. Tell me how off I am, how right I am. What do you think about that? That would, I, my view is you're right on some accounts of dehumanization, not on my account of dehumanization. So it depends how we use the term. So I think what's going on there, let's, instead of using various labels, let me kind of describe it. I think that's a profound failure of empathy. And indeed, you're, a person who indulges in this sort of attitude is kind of denying ordinary human sensitivities, you know, to to the person that they're regarding as, you know, what is it called, black girl magic or something like that. I've only recently heard this expression. Yeah. So, and, and I actually, certainly my impression is that when white people indulge in this sort of thinking, it's not seen as particularly virtuous. It's, it's basically a way of minimizing the harm that's been done to a person, right? So, you know, you should be able to just forgive and forget, and that's that. And I think, actually, that sort of attitude is much more widespread. It's much more widespread when people say, you know, black people should get over the past, or the, the most ridiculous one, get over slavery, as though, you know, the oppression of African-Americans, like, ended in 1865. But, that, to a great extent, is is a measure of, I think it's a combination of ignorance and wishful thinking there. So I wouldn't, I, I think that is a really destructive attitude, but I wouldn't include it in the category dehumanization. Okay. And you wouldn't include it, is it because of, it's not a danger in, in some ways? Well, I don't think that a person who's thought of in that way is thought of as a, as a subhuman creature. Remember, for me, for me, that's definitional of, of dehumanization. Okay. All right. So here's the question: If we have dehumanization, if it's if it's been part of our of history, mm-hmm. if it's taking place now, mm-hmm. how do we combat it? Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's the really question. I wish I could answer very <laughs> definitively. So a lot of dehumanization happens. All right. So let's look at it on two fronts. Remember, we've got something to build on here. We have a basic tendency to recognize one another as human beings. That's really hard to turn off. And in fact, that produces a lot of the problems because that's what results, like I explained, in us seeing people that we try to dehumanize as monsters. So that's something to build on, right? 
So how come we dehumanize people? Well, I think there are two sources of that. One is entrenched ideology, and the other is propaganda. There are always people who are keen to make one group of people harm another group of people and to portray that other group of people in such a way as to make it easy to harm them, right? So let's, let's take that first. We need to be really, really vigilant about the, the sort of language that's used to characterize vulnerable groups of people. The vulnerability element, by the way, if I can come back to something said earlier, it's one of the paradoxes of when we turn people into monsters, these very formidable, very dangerous beings, that's characteristically the most vulnerable members of a population that are seen as the most outrageously vicious and dangerous members of the population. It's ironic and tragic. Okay, so we keep track of that, right? And, and we take a strong line. Now, the line that you take depends on your views, the politics of speech. You know, it might be counter speech. It might be suppression of that sort of speech as so-called hate speech. I say so-called so -called because I think calling it hate speech is actually a misrepresentation of the moral psychology of what's going on. But that would be for another day. No, 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 no. So, 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 <laughs> so what should you call it? I'm not sure what to call I think a little label is probably always going to be misleading, right? But we can hate good things and love bad things, right? So again, if we go back to Charlottesville, which has preoccupied me, which I've written on recently and so on, let's take some of those real extreme, the most extreme ones, which would be the Stormfront people. They love the idea of a superior white race, right? They love it. You could kind of call it love speech. So love isn't always a good thing, right? Hate isn't always a bad thing. Often it's contempt rather than hate. So we, we need a, a much more nuanced vocabulary to describe these sorts of things if we're going to understand them. Because, you know, we do things like march. The very people who criticize George Bush for a war on terror will march against hate, right? It's the same kind of fallacy. Okay, so that's like a, a side issue. <laughs> yeah. So, so we need to really be vigilant about the sorts of language that's used because that kind of language plays on these psychological sensibilities, which allows us to very easily slide into dehumanization. And that's all of it. You know, it's, it's not just ignorant people or bad people. It's very, very easy to to dehumanize. So that's one side. The other side is ideology, right? So it's, it's, there are long-standing systems of beliefs and practices which set the stage for dehumanization, if not actually uphold dehumanization. So we need to, to pay attention to dismantling these ideologies. The two things work in tandem because an ideology can be latent and then you get some propagandistic rhetoric that just sort of sets it on fire, inflames it. So those are two political fronts. There's also education, right? It's education on, on two fronts, actually. And I, I'm thinking of the course I teach that you did me the great favor of, of visiting on Skype, race, racism, and beyond, which I wish I could teach nothing else than that <laughs> course. And one thing you 
you discover teaching this to American students is they don't have a clue about the history of this population, which is still horribly dehumanized in this country. All right. That helps because I think the only way you can understand ideology, you can't do it by engaging in some kind of Cartesian meditation on your own beliefs. The only way you can understand that you are in the grip of an ideology is looking at the history of the beliefs. Right. So that's kind of therapeutic. And that's really, really important. And it's a kind of education which Americans do not receive. Frankly, most white Americans, I can't speak for African-Americans, most white Americans do not have a clue, unlike Germans, right? The Germans have done great. I was in Berlin. My spouse and I were in Berlin earlier in the year, and we visited the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. And there are groups of school children visiting and it being explained to them. I would like to see American students visiting the sites of these spectacle lynchings. Right. I spoke about and have museums set up on these sites to explain to them what was going on in these in in its full horror. So that that's one side of education. But the other side of education is making it clear to people what their vulnerabilities are. Right. So for all vulnerable, just in virtue of being human beings and have a certain kind of psychology, then we need to know that because if we don't know that, we just can't be vigilant. Because you know, if we go back with respect to the propaganda, there are always going to be people who are trying to get us to do violence to others. I mean, that's, that's what elites wishing for power do. And, and we can't effectively resist that unless we understand something about our vulnerability to it. Okay, so that's my response to that really hard question. <laughs> well, thank you so much for it. So you've talked about creepiness. Yeah. So I wonder, what is the creepiest thing you've ever watched on the big screen and surprisingly enjoyed? Oh, first thing comes up, uh, the film Eraserhead, particularly the dinner scene, when the little chickens are start to move on their dinner plates. That oh was really, goodness. really bad. <laughs> and why did you enjoy it? Was it funny to you or what? Anything that's creepy is all fascination is part of creepiness. No, it wasn't funny at all. It was deeply disturbing, but you, it's disturbing in a way where you just can't take your eyes off it. Wow. Wow. You mentioned earlier that education wise, that how you got into the PhD program for philosophy, yeah. and you didn't take any courses, et cetera. And just that interesting educational journey. But you also have a very other interesting educational journey. Tell us a little oh. bit about that. Okay. I'll, I'll make it quick fire. <laughs> I failed high school. I grew up in the South. I failed high school two or three times, dropped out of community college, went off as an illegal immigrant to the United Kingdom, eventually got arrested, started teaching MA students with nothing but a barely achieved high school diploma, <laughs> and eventually did an MA and a PhD. But I've never been a student in a philosophy class, so I, I kind of make things up on my own. And so you, and you don't have a bachelor's degree. I don't have a bachelor's degree. <laughs> but you have a PhD. I have a PhD. So, yeah. so do your students know about this? <laughs> and will you ever reveal it to your student? Because I, if I was one of your students, David, I would say to myself, listen, you can't tell me nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, my students love it. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. Okay. Since you, you mentioned this earlier about just your interest in Freud and mm -hmm. your non-philosophical interest. Have you ever yeah. thought about open up a private practice? 
<laughs> well, I couldn't in this country they have all these licensure things. And frankly, in this country, the uh, interference of third parties, insurance companies, is such that it's very difficult to do psychotherapy responsibly. But I see my work as a big private practice. Right. 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 I'm, I'm wanting to cure us. Look, I want to change the world, right? Mm -hmm. I don't play high class Sudoku, which is what I call <laughs> out of philosophy. <laughs> I want to make a difference. So I see when I when I write, I write for general audiences because I want these problems to go away. Right, right. So when we read your work, when we read all of your books, David, are we going to we are we're sitting in the chair? Are we on the couch? Is is that what's happening? Hey, whatever, whatever, <laughs> wherever you chill most, that's where you should be. David, thank you so much for coming on. I really learned a lot and I enjoy our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.